Chapter Ten of the Desert by John Charles Van Dyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Winged Life. The desert secrets of life and growth and death are not to be read at a glance. The first day's walk is usually a disappointment. You see little more than a desolate waste. The light of the blue sky, the subtle color of the air, the roll of the valleys, the heave of the mountains, do not reveal themselves at once. The vegetation, you think, looks like a thin covering of dry sticks, and as for the animals, the birds, the living things of the desert, they are not apparent at all. But the casual stroll does not bring you to the end of the desert's resources. You may perhaps walk for a whole day and not see a beast or a bird of any description. Yet they are here, even in the lava beds where not even cactus will grow, and where to all appearances there is no life whatever, you may see tracks in the sand where quail and roadrunners and linnets have been running about in search of food. There are tracks, too, of the coyote and the wild cat, tracks following tracks. The animals and the birds belong to the desert or the neighboring mountains, but they are not always on view. You meet with them only in the early morning and evening when they are moving about. In the middle of the day they are in the shadow of bush or rock, or lying in some cut bank or cave, keeping out of the direct rays of the sun. The birds are not very numerous even when they come forth. They prefer places that afford better cover. And yet, as you make a memorandum of each new bird you see, you are surprised after a time to find how many are the varieties. And the surprise grows when you think of the dangers and hardships that continually harass bird life here in the desert. It may be fancied, perhaps, that the bird is exempt from danger because he has wings to carry him out of the reach of the animals, but we forget that he has enemies of his own kind in the air, and if he avoids the hawks by day, how shall he avoid the owls by night? Where at night shall he go for protection? There are no broad-leafed trees to offer a refuge, in fact few trees of any sort. The bushes are not so high that a coyote cannot reach to their top at a jump, nor are the spines and ledges of rock in the mountains so steep that a wild cat cannot climb up them. No, the bird is subject to the same dangers as the animals and the plants. Something is forever on his trail. He must always be on guard, and the food problem, ever of vital interest to bird life, bothers him just as much as it does the coyote. There is little for him to eat and nothing for him to drink, and hardly a resting place for the sole of his foot. Besides, it would seem as though he should be affected by the intense heat more than he is in reality. Humanity at times has difficulty in withstanding this heat, for though it is not suffocating, it parches the mouth and dries up the blood so rapidly that if water is not attainable, the effect is soon apparent. The animals, that is the wild ones, are never phased by it, 
but the domestic horse, dog, and cow yield to it almost as readily as a man. And men and animals are all of low blood temperature, a man's normal temperature being about 98 degrees Fahrenheit. But what of the bird in his coat of feathers, which may add to or detract from his warmth? What is his normal temperature? It varies with the species, so far as I can ascertain by experiment, from 112 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Consider that blood temperature in connection with a surrounding air varying from 100 to 125 degrees Fahrenheit. It would seem impossible for any life to support it. One may well wonder what strange wings beat this glowing air, what bird life lives in this fiery waste. Yet the desert birds look not very different from their cousins of the woods and streams, except that they are thinner, more subdued in color, somewhat more alert. They are very pretty, very innocent-looking birds. But we may be sure that living here in the desert, enduring its hardships and participating in its incessant struggle for life and for the species, they have just the same savage instincts as the plants and the animals. The sprightliness and the color may suggest harmlessness, but the eye, the beak, the claw are designed for destruction. The roadrunner is one of the mildest-looking and most graceful birds of the desert, but the spring of the wildcat to crush down a rabbit is not more fierce than the snap of the bird's beak as he tosses a luckless lizard. He is the only thing on the desert that has the temerity to fight a rattlesnake. It is said that he kills the snake, but as to that I am not able to give evidence. And it is not alone the bird of prey, not alone the roadrunners, the eagles, the vultures, the hawks, and the owls that are savage of mood. Every little wisp of energy that carries a bunch of feathers is endowed with the same spirit. The downward swoop of the cactus wren upon a butterfly, and the snip of his little scissors bill, the dash after insects of the flycatchers, vireos, swallows, bats, and whippoorwills, are just as murderous in kind as the blow of the condor and the vice-like clutch of his talons as they sink into the back of a rabbit. Skill and strength in the chase are absolutely necessary in a desert, where food is so scarce, and in proportion the little birds have these qualities in common with the great. And naturally, as is the case of the animals, the skill and the strength develop along the line of the bird's needs, producing that quality of character, that fitness for the work cut out for him to which we have so often referred. There are birds that belong almost solely to the kingdom of the air, birds like the condor, the vulture, and the eagle. Upon the ground they move awkwardly, not having better feet to walk with than ducks and geese. The talons are too much developed for walking. When they rise from the ground they do it heavily and with quick flapping wings. Not until they are fairly started in the upper air do they show that wonderful wing power they possess. The common brown-black vulture, or turkey buzzard, is the type of all the wheelers and sailors. The soaring eagle of poetry is something of a 
goose beside him for the wings of the vulture bear him through the wind sun and heat hour after hour without a pause to see him circling as he hunts down a mountain range a hundred miles or more one might think that the abnormal breast muscles never grow weary he goes over every foot of the ground with his eyes and at the same time watches every other vulture in the sky let one of his fellows stop circling and drop earthward on a long incline and immediately he is followed by all the black crew they know instantly that something has been discovered but often the hunt is in vain and then for whole days at a time those motionless wings bear their burden apparently without fatigue with no food perhaps for a fortnight and never any water that spare rack of muscles sails the air with as little effort as floating thistle-down no one knows just how it is done in blow or calm against the wind or with it high in the blue or low over the ground any place anywhere and under any circumstances those wings cut through the air almost like sunlight you can hear a whiz like the flight of arrows as the bird passes close over your head but you cannot see the slightest motion in the feathers the hot thin air of the desert would seem a less favorable air for sailing than the moister atmosphere of the south but the vulture of the tropics is not the equal of the desert bird he is heavier lazier and more stupid possibly because better fed there are several varieties in the family the chief variants being the one with white-tipped wings and the one with a white eagle-like head neither of them is as good on the wing as the black species though none of them is to be despised even the ordinary carrion crow of the desert is an expert sailor compared with any of the crow family to be found elsewhere the exigencies of the situation seem to require wings developed for long-distance flights and the vultures the crows the eagles the hawks all respond after their individual fashions the condor is perhaps the vulture's peer in the matter of sailing he belongs to the vulture family though very much larger than any of its members sometimes measuring fifteen feet across the wings and weighing forty pounds he is the largest bird on the continent at the present time he is occasionally seen wheeling high in air like a mere insect in the great blue dome it is said that he soars as high as twenty-five thousand feet above the earth but to-day he sails alone and his tribe has grown less year by year with the eagles he keeps well up in the high sierras and builds a nest on the inaccessible peaks or along the steep escarpments he belongs to the desert only because it is one of his hunting grounds this may be said of the eagles and hawks they hunt the desert by day but go home to the mountains at night the owls are somewhat different not being given to long flight the deep caves or wind-worn recesses under mountain ledges furnish them abiding places these caves also send forth at dusk 
a full complement of bats that seem not different from the ordinary eastern bats. The burrowing owl is perhaps misnamed, though not misplaced. There is no evidence whatever that I have ever seen or heard to show that he burrows. What happens is that he crawls into some hole that is already burrowed, instead of a cave or recess in the rocks. A prairie dog or badger hole is his preference. That the place has inhabitants, including the tarantula, and it is said the rattlesnake, does not bother the owl. He walks in with his mate and speedily makes himself at home. How the different families get on together can be imagined by one person as well as by another. They do not seem to pay any attention to each other, so far as I have observed. Ordinarily the desert animals, birds, and reptiles agree to no such truce. They are at war from the start. I do not know that the owls, the bats, the nighthawks have any special equipment for carrying on their part of the war. Sometimes I have fancied they had larger eyes than is usual with their kinds outside of the desert, but I have no proof of this. Perhaps it is like the speculation as to whether the buzzard sees or scents the carrion that he discovers so readily, hardly amenable to proof. All of the air birds are strikingly developed in the wings and equally undeveloped in the feet, while all the ground birds of the desert are just the reverse of this, that is, deficient in wings but strong of foot and leg. The roadrunner, as he is sometimes called the chaparral cock, is a notable instance of this. He is a lizard eater, and in order to eat he must first catch his lizard. Now this is by no means an easy task. The ordinary gray, brown, or yellow lizard is the swiftest dodger and darter there is in the sand, and even in straight line running he will travel too fast for an ordinary dog to catch him. His facility, too, in dashing up, over, and under boulders is not to be underestimated. The roadrunner's task, then, is not an easy one, and yet he seems to accomplish it easily. There is no great effort about his pursuit, and yet he generally manages to catch the lizard. It is because his legs are specially constructed for running, and his head, neck, and beak for darting. His wings are of little use. When chased by a dog, he will finally take to them, but only for about fifty yards. Then he drops to the ground and starts on foot again. He will run away from a man, and sometimes even a horse cannot keep up with him. Oddly enough, he always seems to run a little sideways. The long tail, used as a rudder, is carried a little to the right or the left, and gives this impression. When frightened, his top knot is raised like that of the pheasant, and he often runs with his beak open. It is a most vicious beak, for all that it looks not more bloodthirsty than that of the crow. It snaps through a scorpion or a centipede like a pair of sheep shears, and with all his energy and strength, the roadrunner weighs only about a pound. He is a long-geared bird, but not actually any larger than a pigeon. 
the Blue Valley quail, whether of Arizona or California breeding, is quite as strong of leg as the roadrunner, though not perhaps so swift. He does not care much about using his wings, and at best they are not better than the rather poor average of quail's wings. By that I mean that all quails rise from cover with a great roar and bustle, and they fly very fast for a short distance. But they are soon down upon the ground, running and hiding. The flight of the quail, too, is straight ahead. It is not possible for him to rise up over five hundred feet of canyon wall, for instance. And even on an ordinary mountain side, he takes several flights before he reaches the summit. The wings are not muscled like the legs, and that is because the quail is a ground bird. He gets his food there and spends most of his time there. In the east, Bob White always roosts upon the ground, but the desert quail is usually too clever to trust himself in such an exposed place. He will travel miles to get into a cottonwood tree at dusk, and if there is water near at hand, so much the better. He dearly loves the water and the tree, but if he cannot get them, he accepts the situation philosophically and goes to sleep on a high ledge of rock with water perhaps in his thought, but not in his crop. Thanks to his capacity for traveling, the quail usually manages to get enough of small seeds and insects to keep himself alive. He is a great roamer in the course of a day's traveling over many miles of country, and his quest is always food. He likes to be among the great boulders that lie along the bases of the mountains, and when disturbed he flies and jumps from rock to rock, much to the discouragement of the coyote that happens to be the disturber. When forced to rise, he flies perhaps for a hundred yards or more, and then drops and begins running. In the spring he mates, raises a brood, and teaches the young ones the gentle art of running. In the fall, he and his family of a dozen or sixteen join with other families to make a great covey of several hundred, or in the old days before the market hunters came, several thousand, and they all run. The bottom of the quail's foot is always itching for the ground, and he seems never so happy as when leaving the enemy far behind him. His little legs take him through the brush so fast that you cannot keep up with him. Every muscle in him is as tough as a watch-spring. You may wound him, but you have not yet got him. He will creep into some cactus patch or crawl down a snake hole, elude you in some way, and in the end die game just out of your reach. There are few trees upon the desert, and few bushes of any size, yet there are birds of the tree and the bush here, just as there are birds of the air and of the ground. The most of them seem the same kind of linnets, sparrows, and thrushes that are seen along the California coast, though probably they have some peculiar desert characteristic. I cannot see any difference between the little woodpeckers here and the woodpeckers elsewhere. Yet this desert variety flies from saguaro to saguaro, alights on the spiny trunk with a little thump, and immediately 
begins hitching himself up through the worst imaginable rows of needles just as though he were climbing a plain pine tree the ordinary turtle dove with his red pigeon feet alights on the top of the same saguaro the wren bores holes in it and makes a nest within the cylinder and the dwarf thrush dashes in and out of tangled thickets of chola all day long and yet none of them suffers any injury it seems incredible that birds not accustomed to the desert could do such things possibly too these bush birds insect devourers most of them have some special faculty for catching their prey though i have not been able to discover it the flycatchers the mockingbirds the finches in a land of plenty are quick enough in breaking the back of a butterfly or beetle and any extra energy would seem superfluous still there is no telling what fine extra stimulus lies in an empty crop and crops are usually empty on the desert even the little hummingbird has difficulty in picking a living in blossom time he is of course in fine condition but i have seen him dashing about in the fall when nothing at all was in bloom and evidently none the worse for some starvation he is a swifter flyer than the ordinary bird and is also duller in coloring but in other respects he seems not different he breeds on the desert building his nest in the pitahaya and he and his mate then have a standing quarrel with their neighbors over the rest of the summer there is not in the whole feathered tribe a more quarrelsome scrap of vivacity than the hummingbird the dwarf dove common to sonora the oven bird the red grosbeak and many other of the smaller birds known to civilization are found on the desert but apparently with no special faculty for overcoming its hardships this is due perhaps to the fact that they are not always there are not exclusively desert birds nor do any of the migratory birds belong to the desert though they stop here for weeks at a time in their flights north or south at almost any season of the year one sees the cow blackbird and the smaller crow blackbird the mockingbird comes only in the spring and fall and the lark in early summer the lark looks precisely like the eastern bird but his note is changed whereas the flicker has changed the color under his wings from yellow to pink but not his note the robin is no whit different from the front lawn robin of our childhood and the bobolink rising from salt bush and yucca singing as he rises is the bobolink of ancient days at times there are troops of magpies that come and go across the waste and at other times troops of blue jays and high in air through the warmth of spring and the cold of autumn there are great flocks of ducks geese brant divers shags willet curlew swinging along silently to the southern or northern waterways they seldom pause even when following the colorado river unless in need of water on the mesas and uplands one sometimes sees a group of sand-hill cranes walking about and indulging in a crazy dance peculiarly their own but the sight is no longer a common one and again the prey 
what of the prey has nature left the beetles the bugs the worms the bees completely at the pleasure of the bird's beak no not completely though it must be acknowledged that she has not provided much defensive armor for them individually she encases her beautiful blue and yellow beetles in hard shells that other insects cannot break through but they are flimsy defenses against the mockingbird to bugs and worms and bees she gives perhaps a sting deadly enough when thrust into a spider but useless again when used in defense against a cactus thrush and this is where nature shows her absolute indifference to the life or the death of the individual she allows the bugs and beetles to be slaughtered like the mackerel in the sea but she is a little more careful about preserving the species and how does she do this without preserving the individual why simply by increasing the number of individuals by breed by fertility by multiplicity thousands are annually slaughtered yes but thousands are annually bred what matter about their lives or deaths provided they do not increase or decrease as a species the insects on the desert are mere flashes of life pinpoints of energy but not without purpose and not without beauty the beasts and the birds may be bleached brown or gray by the sun but the insects are many of them as gay as those of the tropics the ordinary beetles that a chance turn of a stone reveals are like scarabs of gold turquoise azurite bronze platinum hurrying and scurrying out of the way the tarantula wasp with his gorgeous orange-colored body and his blue wings is like a bauble made of precious stones flickering along the ground the great dragonfly with his many-lensed eye the bees with black and yellow bodies the butterflies with their bright-hued wings the white and gray millers all of them dwellers in the sands are spots of light and color that illumine the desert as the rich jewel the ethiop's ear the wings of gauze that bear the ordinary fly upon the air the feet of ebony that carry the plain black beetle along the rocks are made with just as much care and skill as the wings of the condor and the foot of the road-runner nature in every product of her hand shows the completeness of her workmanship she made the wings and the legs for a purpose and they fulfill that purpose they are without flaw and above reproach once more therefore have they character and fitness and once more therefore are they beautiful i need not now argue beauty in the birds the beetles and the butterflies you will admit it without argument the slate blue of the quail the gay red of the grosbeak the charm of the rock wren the vivacity of the bobolink or the scale runner captivate you and compel your sympathy and admiration yes but every one of them is after his kind as much of a butcher just as much of a destroyer as the wild cat or the yellow rattlesnake and they have no more character and perhaps less fitness for the desert life than the sneaking coyote or the flattened lizard 
which you do not admire but why are not the coyote and the lizard beautiful too why not the beauty of the horned toad and the serpent are we never to love or to admire save where form and color tickle the eye are these forever to monopolize the name of beauty and gather to themselves the world's applause if we could but rid ourselves of the false ideas which taken en masse are called education we should know that there is nothing ugly under the sun save that which comes from human distortion nature's work is all of it good all of it purposeful all of it wonderful all of it beautiful we like or dislike certain things which may be a way of expressing our prejudice or our limitation but the work is always perfect of its kind irrespective of human appreciation we may prefer the sunlight to the starlight the evening primrose to the bisnaga the antelope to the mountain lion the mockingbird to the lizard but to say that one is good and the other bad that one is beautiful and the other ugly is to accuse nature herself of preference something which she never knew she designs for the cactus of the desert as skillfully and as faithfully as for the lily of the garden each in its way is suited to its place and each in its way has its unique beauty of character and so more truly perhaps than shakespeare himself knew the toad called ugly and venomous still holds a precious jewel in its head End of chapter 10